As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley, director of Premier Unbelievable, and this show brought to you in partnership with SBCK and NT Wright Online. In fact, we've got links to special deals to both of our partners with today's show. And on the show today, we're asking why did God make childbirth difficult? More questions about Adam, Eve, Eden and the fall today and today Tom will be answering questions like were Adam and Eve's pre-fall bodies like the resurrected Jesus was marriage a post-fall accommodation why does Genesis say God made childbirth more difficult after the fall okay so let's see how Tom handles these ones today by the way just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's responded to our call for child sponsorship with compassion which we put out two weeks ago we've seen such a generous response from listeners after Jay a compassion child himself shared his story with Tom of going from the slums of Kenya to a new life but there's still lots of kids we'd love to see sponsored. We're shooting for a whole village, 100 kids, to be sponsored through the show. So if you can sponsor from the USA, then just text Justin to 83393 and that'll start your journey off. Uh, or from anywhere in the world, go to the website compassion.com forward slash Justin. And as a thank you to anyone sponsoring from the USA, we'll send you a copy of my book, Unbelievable. So if you can join the effort, that would be amazing. I'll update you again in a few weeks' time on how we're doing. Uh, for now, let's jump back into Genesis. Welcome back to today's show. And we've got more of your questions today on creation, evolution, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, that sort of thing. It comes up very, very frequently, Tom. And um, a lot of these questions, I think, come from the fact that a lot of churches place a great deal of emphasis on the first chapters of Genesis and exactly, you know, how old is the age of the earth and that sort of thing. Now, I know that your perspective probably differs from many uh, in the, the US, especially who, you know, are part of the Young Earth Creation Movement and so on. Um, but but these sometimes even for those who don't sort of necessarily go that that route, it still leaves lots of questions about, well, how does the Bible interact with modern science and evolution and, and everything else? So uh, if you're listening to this without having heard our first episode on this, do do go back in the podcast and listen to that first, because some of what we're saying will will really be carrying on from that. Um, um, why don't we pick up, though, with the question about pre-fall bodies? Ashley in Los Angeles is asking if the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. Were Adam and Eve's bodies before the fall like Jesus's resurrection body? So I'd, I'd be interested, first of all, in this theory that 
the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. What do you make of that, Tom? And, and then this question about whether that means there were sort of pre-fall, you know, Jesus-like bodies uh, for Adam and yeah. Eve. That, that's a great question. I confess that before I read this question, I'd never quite thought of that as a possibility, as an option, but it's a very interesting one. I do believe that uh, the, the creation story in Genesis envisages God making a world in which heaven and earth do overlap so that um, we are not surprised or we shouldn't be surprised when Adam and Eve hear uh, the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It looks as though the creation as envisaged in Genesis 1 and two is a place where God wants to be at home with his image-bearing human creatures. And however we envisage this in terms of, as I said in the previous episode, um, God slowly, beautifully making this world, 14 billion years of it, um, to the point where it makes sense to create uh, the creatures in his own image, who will then one day be the vehicle which he himself will use, through whom he will himself come into his creation. It makes sense to think of this as a heaven and earth overlapping place. However, that doesn't mean that it is now the ultimate new creation. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 describe a forward-looking project, not a tableau, so that the story of the Bible is not about here it was, it was all perfect, then it went horribly wrong, and now God's putting it back to perfection again. It's 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 a, a very good creation, but it's very good because it's going to go to the place God wants it to go. And it's very interesting when you look at the book of Revelation and discover that in Revelation 21 and 22, which seems very consciously to echo Genesis 1 and 2 in all sorts of ways, um, it isn't a going back to the garden. It's the creation of a garden city. Very interesting that after the fall, when Cain kills Abel and then Cain goes off, the first thing that Cain does is to build a city, which is interesting. Who are these other people who are inhabiting this city, etc., etc.? Mm. It's as though humans know in their bones that uh, the garden is the beginning and the city is the goal, but it's supposed to be a garden city, a place of, of both, rather than what, from Cain onwards, humans make of it, which is a Tower of Babel effectively and that's how Genesis um, 3 to 11 or 4 to 11 really works I think the, um, compared with what then happens which is God's call of Abraham to be the beginning of the renewal of the human race and he is a childless nomad a wanderer uh, with, with no place to call his own until uh, eventually dot 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 so that I think when we're thinking about what was going on at the beginning it wasn't that they had new creational bodies that was to come they were the beginning of the purpose which would eventually lead there mm. because of sin and death that had to happen through the incredibly painful means of God's long-awaited incarnation including his taking on himself the weight of sin and death and dealing with it so it's a very huge yeah. extraordinary story but that's the way I would tell it I mean just taking the story as it's told, I've I've heard it said um, that in a sense, it, we mustn't necessarily take it for granted that Adam and Eve were somehow immortal in their so-called pre-fall state, uh, but rather that you know in the in the sense that Jesus, you know, um, in in his risen state is because they um, they it was you know one theory is that it was the tree of life which sustained them in that sense, but it's simply when they were yes. they had no longer had access to that and were put out of the yes. garden then 
they would they would you know um age and, and die, die eventually yes. as, as anyone else would which would then be the fulfillment of in the day that you eat of it then you will die because in the day that you eat of it mm. um, of the tree of yes. the knowledge of good and evil then they are kicked out of the garden they don't have access to the tree of life there are at mm. least two theories about that i have tended to think that they had not yet eaten of the tree of life because it looks as though they're put out of the garden lest they take of the tree of life and live forever in their right. now sinful state mm. i know others who say no mm. they were constantly eating of the tree of life and so they would have gone on um staying alive mm. in some form would they have grown old I i'm not sure that we're meant to be asking those questions i think it's the wrong questions to be to be addressing to that text uh, again there's a kind of um, hermeneutical humility required here to, to say what are mm -hmm. these texts actually trying to tell us rather than here are the questions we came up with a couple of thousand years later yes uh, let's force them back on these texts and see if we can wrench something out of them and we have to be very yes. careful when we do that we, we we like to go as 21st century people and try and pull apart texts which weren't always meant to be read in exactly the way we we tend to like to read things today. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that that doesn't that doesn't mean there isn't a fruitful dialogue, there, sure. or there isn't a potentially fruitful dialogue. It's just that we have to be very careful. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday in conversation with my wife about I can't even remember what the issue was, but it was something where um, we tend to assume that uh, a word. Oh, I know what it was. It was when Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me." In the Greek, is anamnesin, Eastern m a anamnesin, and a much later theology talked about anamnesis and tried to build into that all sorts of theories about the Eucharist, about the breaking of bread, and mm. and so on, um, which are not part of that Greek word anamnesis in the first century, but it's the question of then the medieval period looking back and saying, well, that's the word Jesus used, so it must mean what we now mean by it. That's that's the trick. Mm. And that's, that's a very, uh, yeah. a, a very uh, slippery slope that you get onto when you start playing that game. I sometimes wish I was there with a microphone when you're around the, the lunch table with Maggie having these wonderful conversations, Tom. <laughs> we, Mag, it's funny because Maggie and I do not often have that kind of conversation, but it was it was something that uh, that my son Oliver had said who was with us. Um, uh, and uh, so anyway, yes. Yes, anyway. Um, let, let's go to another question. And again, you might need to unpack sort of exactly what we mean by fall, pre-fall or whatever in this question from Stephen in Nashville, Tennessee. But it says, in the resurrection, Direction, will all things be returned to their original intended pre-fall state and if so what does that mean for marriage in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage so does that mean marriage as we understand it was a post-fall accommodation rather than the original plan yeah, I have known people who've said that marriage, uh, including sexual relations, was something that had to happen after the fall and that before the fall they wouldn't have done that stuff um, that seems to me ridiculous in Genesis 1 and 2, it seems pretty clear that Adam and Eve are told, be fruitful and multiply. And this mm. is part of God's original plan. And again, we have to be careful. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe the beginning of a project, the launching of a project, not uh, a projected final state yet. So when Jesus says that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, um, he, he is saying that uh, at the moment, marriage and and sex and childbearing and so on are part of god's plan to complete 
the business of human beings, as it were, colonizing the earth on God's behalf. That, that has a bad feel for us because we know what human beings have done when they've tried to do that. But uh, the, the, the genuine idea of humans reflecting God's glory and stewardship into the world was always creative and healing and upbuilding and not destructive and exploitative, etc. So that then in the new creation, when there will be no more death, there will be no more need for procreation to renew and restore the species and to keep the human race going forwards, as it were. That doesn't mean that the relationships we have uh, in the present life become completely irrelevant. Uh, there are all sorts of debates in some of the early fathers about whether there will be um, sexual relations um, between uh, the, the risen bodies of uh, husbands and wives or anybody else either. Um, I'm not sure, again, we can know that or even should know that. Um, it seems to me that uh, part of what's going on here is is a sense that where we are at the moment, there are certain things which are enormously important to us, which are built in to be enormously important, which are about God's plan for being fruitful, multiplying, etc., etc. As I, I once uh, cheekily summarised the vocation of, of Genesis one as sex, gardening, and God, um, <laughs> being being fruitful, looking after the world, and 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 worshiping the Creator, um, and in the new creation. Uh, all of those things will turn out to be signposts pointing to the greater and deeper reality. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's remark about a, a small boy who, on being told that sex was the greatest pleasure known to human beings, asked if you ate chocolates at the same time, <laughs> because in, in his world, eating chocolates was the greatest pleasure he could imagine, sure. to which I suppose the answer might be, well, you could, but that's probably not the point, um, or something like that. Um, but in other words, what looms largest in our present life, um, you know, money, sex, and power, basically, um, will we will look back on from the future life and say, yes, that was important. They were signposts pointing to this greater mm. good which we now enjoy. So that the relationships between former spouses in God's new creation remembering that for much of human history, people have had very short life expectancies. So quite a lot of people have been married two or three or four times simply because of regular death. Um, I think that's not something that we're given to know, and I don't think it will be a problem. Um, how, the, how God will work that out, I don't know. What I do know is that fidelity, spousal fidelity, is one of the things which will shine brightly in God's new creation. Uh, even if one has been faithful to successive spouses because previous ones have died or whatever, it's the fidelity which reflects God's own faithfulness to creation, and that is what will make us who we will be. And another sort of quite practical question about the outworking of the fall and sin and so on. Um, and these are two questions I'll sort of try and roll into one from Jessica, first of all, in Bray in California and, and Derek in um, Selena. Um, so Jessica's question is, um, this might be a variation on other questions on suffering, evil and the sovereignty of God that have been previously asked. But I was wondering if you might say something specifically about Eve's curse in Genesis 3, where God greatly increases Eve's pain in childbearing, as well as the ruling over of husbands over wives. What does this tell us, if anything, about the character of God, his goodness and the nature of his intentions towards humanity and towards women in particular, in light of the suffering that women have endured historically and presently 
either due to childbearing or gender-based violence. I suppose the same question could be asked about Adam's curse or the curse of the ground, but I'm more interested in the question as applied to Eve. And then again, to follow up with Derek, my wife and I are currently pregnant with our first child, a baby boy. But my wife keeps asking me, why did God make pregnancy and birth so difficult when it is evident that God does love new life? I've been stumped, so I thought I'd ask you. Thanks so much. I've learned so much from your podcast and writing. So um, similar question, but asked perhaps with two different emphases here, Tom. Um, firstly, Jessica just feels, look, it, it feels like this is, yeah. What, where, where do you go first of all with Jessica's question then? Did, what does this say about the character of God that he imposes apparently this sort of suffering on women and, and, and so on? Yeah, I, I speak, I mean, I should say I speak as, as, a, as a father and a grandfather and of course <clears throat> as a husband. And I was present for three of the four births which my wife uh, gave I couldn't be there for the first one because it involved a, a small operation. But so I, I do have some quite literally hands-on experience of, of just what an extraordinary thing childbirth is. A beautiful thing, but extraordinary and dangerous and frightening and painful thing it is. Um, I don't have a good, easy answer for this. I, I, but I do think as a matter of principle, it's very difficult to look at one aspect of the world the way it is and say, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it like this. Um, uh, somebody said to me the other day uh, that uh, a five-year-old granddaughter, this was a friend up in Scotland, five-year-old granddaughter had had a terrible day at school and then it had all gone wrong at home, etc., etc. And at the end of the day had said to her mother, um, when is God going to make the new world? And the mother said, well, we're not we don't know that and she said well i hope when he does there won't be another day like this one um, and uh, that's that's a a wonderful uh, characteristic uh, a view of of we understand the world the way it is but um, hang on what's god up to here and and i think we, we only really know who god is when we look carefully at jesus and when we see jesus compassion for those who are suffering, uh, in, and, and when we see Jesus' compassion for his own, for his own mother, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, um, we start there. We start with Jesus, and we work out cautiously and humbly towards thinking. If Jesus is the living embodiment of God the Creator, which is what classic Christianity has always taught, then what can we say? Not, let's start with the thorns and thistles and the pain in childbirth and then say, why would God have done that? Um, because I don't know, and I suspect nobody knows, quite what those lines in Genesis 3 um, mean about how it would have been otherwise if it hadn't been for the fall um, would childbirth have been perfectly easy um, childbirth is I think harder and easier in different species I'm, I'm not a biologist I'm not a, uh, a zoologist so I don't know the detail of that um, but I think human childbirth is is particularly difficult very often um, and I but I don't think that is a special punishment for the woman. I think this is a way of the writer and editor of Genesis um, sensing prophetically the purpose of God into and through the present sad, mm. tragic, fallen situation. It's a way of saying every aspect of who we now are, including the most intimate. And you see, be fruitful and multiply and look after the garden is then reflected in 
it's going to be hard work, this being fruitful and multiplying, and it's going to be hard work in looking after the garden mm. so that the, mm. the female and the male um, uh, problems reflect the deterioration of that original vocation. But I think what's happened then, and I detect this behind that first question, I very much resonate with this, is that in many parts of Western culture, sadly, I hear it from many people in some parts of North America, more now than I do from Britain or Europe, um, is that people have, men have taken bits like this out of context and have used them surreptitiously or sometimes quite explicitly as ways of putting women down, of quote, keeping them in their place, etc., etc., etc. Some of the dynamic in the present debates, dare I say, about the Roe versus Wade issue um, belong on the same map, though that is so controversial and many-sided that, that it wouldn't be a good example, would help us to get into it. I just think it scares up a lot of impulses, and some of those impulses have been incredibly negative towards women. I very much appreciate and understand that. And I think you cannot then have a chain all the way back from that to, oh, well, that's what how God wanted it to be in Genesis 3. I just don't think it works like yeah. that. And you yeah. can see this quite clearly in the New Testament, where Jesus values um, the, his, his female companions, where he gives Mary Magdalene the first task of evangelism, go and tell my brothers that I've, I'm ascending to the Father, etc. Um, and where Paul regards um, his female co-workers as very much co-workers and not, oh, we can't give this letter to Phoebe because mm. she'll probably drop it overboard by accident mm. or anything mm. silly mm. like that. Um, so I think we see in the New Testament the glorious redemption of all that had gone wrong. And the church is supposed to be the place in which that redemption is anticipated, not the place which rubs our noses in the mud of uh, the problems that arise from the fall. I, I've always felt as well, or, or it's just what you said there almost has made me think of the um, an analogy also with what obviously Paul says in Romans, where he's talking about the groaning of creation and uh, as in childbirth. And, and there's also, yep. almost a sense that the the creation itself you know that 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 the 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 difficulty that women have in childbearing is is almost a, a picture of this coming to birth of something new but the, which is painful with this process of of, of new birth and Absolutely. new life and new creation Absolutely. And uh, the, that, that triple image in Romans eight eighteen to 27 of the world groaning in travel, the church groaning in travel within the world, and then the spirit groaning within us, within the world, um, that is extraordinary that this groaning, this labor pain thing is something which God himself comes to share by the Spirit. And that is a very profound reflection. In fact, I, I really do think that Romans 8 is, is one of the deepest and richest passages in the whole Bible. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I hope it's been helpful to you, Derek and Jessica, um, as you've asked these questions. Uh, and we never claim to have kind of put a lid on a complete answer to any of these questions. They, they are, there's a great deal of mystery Quite. and, and we just have to live in that tension a great deal of the time in these, these, these passages and, you know, uh, as we try to understand the way that they impact our world today and, uh, and, and our understanding. But thank you again, Tom, for taking the time to, to look at them and to try to thank do you. your best to answer them. Thank you. Um, and uh, I can recommend if you want more answers on Genesis, go back in the podcast archive and you'll find other episodes where we've tackled similar kinds of issues in the past. And uh, it's well worth uh, your time doing that. But for now, thank you very much, Tom, for being with me. 
Thanks, Justin. Good to be here. Hey, I hope you found today's show helpful. We'll be back next time with your questions on life beyond Earth and the cosmos. Would God need to redeem aliens? We get all kinds of questions on this show. Uh, is Tom a fan of sci-fi as well? You'll find out that next time. And don't forget that if you want to ask a question yourself, you can get hold of the link to do so by simply registering for our newsletter. That's the way to get the email address to send your question in. The links are with today's show or go to our big website, premierunbelievable.com. Thanks for being with us and see you next time. <laughs>